0: The following podcast contains explicit language. From New York City, this is Lexicon Valley, a podcast about language. I'm John McWhorter, and we're going to start out this time with a recording of me and my youngest daughter. And... Over the holidays, you catch up on things like teaching your children to read. And so, here I am with Vanessa, and we're reading the grand old Hop on Pop, and listen to something that happens somewhere in about the middle. All right, Hop on Pop here. Where are we? Um, Okay, Mr. Brown, read read this slowly. Mr. Brown. And look at the picture. Mr. Brown. Mm Mm-hmm. Upside down. Okay. So we're going to go slowly. So look at this. Read this word. Upside down. Mm-hmm. Why are they separate? You mean the two words upside and down? Because really it's just a word. It's upside down. That's really all it is. But you write it upside down. Because people used to say, "Well, there he is with his upside down. But that was a long time ago. So, yeah, this just, it's bad. Upside down. So, do it again. Upside down. And where's the down? That's right. So, it's upside down. But what we say is upside down. Now, you're going to have to listen through the rest of this to find out why that exchange between me and Nessa mattered. But the theme of this episode is figuring out where words come from beyond what I have seemed to imply in a lot of these shows. And I'm basing this on feedback I get from a lot of you. I think that these days, especially with linguistics being in podcasts and being in your ears all the time, it's really getting through to the public that language always changes. That lesson is penetrating in a way that it had not until relatively recently. But In terms of how language changes, you might quite justifiably think that the main thing that happens is simplification, that sounds are always falling off. Maybe they're changing, but often they're just falling off. And there's this idea that languages get simpler over time. And you know what? That's not true. It is not a natural process for a language to keep getting easier than it was. And I did a show about this way back in about 1948, but most of you didn't hear that one. And this is a lesson that bears revisiting with a different approach than the one that I did then. But the important thing is to realize that that business that you're told that languages get simpler over time is not true. Languages both simplify and complexify at the same time. And the normal situation is that the two things balance each other out. But that means you might want to know, where do you get new words? How does material build or transform so that you have something new rather than just sounds falling off of things and everything getting shorter? How we get new words is often from bits of language combining that were separate before. So you get combinations of things that, after a while, become not combinations of two discrete things, but a single one new thing. Let's take three words. Recount, overlook, and understand. Those three words. Now, there's counting, and if you count something again, you recount. So that's a combination of re and count. Now, recount is technically a different word from count, but you could also just think of it as count where something's been done to it to indicate that it happens more than once. Recount. Big whoop. Okay. Now, overlook. Overlook might mean that you are looking over and pass something. But notice that isn't what you first thought. When I say overlook, you don't think about somebody looking over a wall. You don't think about being in a little hotel in Germany and your room overlooks the garden or something like that. You think of neglecting something, of skipping something. That's the idiomatic meaning that's come in. So, we can understand how to look over metaphorically refers to something like missing that You didn't bring the eggs back from the supermarket or something like that. But still, it's a little bit new. Overlook, as in you overlooked that you didn't bring the eggs back. That's a newish word. It's not looking over a wall, in which case you could think of it as just something being done to the word look. It's a different thing. Or if that's an in-between case, understand isn't. So, we all know what understand means, but you're not standing under anything. And even linguists and etymologists have no idea exactly how it came to be that understand referred to comprehension. It's just one of those things. So, that means that when we say understand, it's not the word stand where some underness has been done to it. Understand is a whole new word, even if we can hear that at some point back at the Dawn of time, it started as a combination of undering and standing. It's just a new word. So that is one way that you get new words when two things come together, but then the meaning that they connote drifts so far from what the original meanings of the two things were that really you have some single new thing. So, while sounds are dropping off all over the place, and Latin's Augustus is becoming French's ooh, and for those of you who have pointed out some things about that with me, we will get to that later, but Augustus to ou, that's one thing that's happening, without a doubt. But then in the meantime, under and stand are coming together to create understand, which even though it sounds like it's under and stand, is really just a chunk of understand. That's all it is. It's a brand new word. And English is full of things like this that you don't necessarily think of as being that because of the arbitrariness of how we write things. When we talk about word, what we really mean is a form matched to a meaning. And that might not always be what is one thing on the page. And so, for example, to make up after a fight. Now, it's make and it's up. Now, I could try to be cute and say, what is it about making and then the verticality of up that creates something like to make up as in to reconcile after an argument? But actually, it's a different up. It's what we call the completive up. If you're going to fry up some eggs, it doesn't mean that you're going to toss the eggs like pizza. It means that you're going to get them fried. You're going to complete the action. Here, I've got the eggs all fried up. Well, that's the up that's involved in making up is in reconciling. But still, notice, make, why is it making? There are all sorts of things you can make. A reconciliation would seem to be one of a great many, and certainly not what your first, second, or even third or fourth guess would be. And then up, it's going to be complete. You're frying up some eggs. Okay, you've got them all fried up. But do you have a reconciliation all knitted up? No, it's very Very random at this point. And so that means that when we talk about making up after an argument, that's a new word. Technically, it's two chunks and maybe what we see on the page is what we're going to call words. But it's a whole new label that started out as two things coming together, which themselves meant something very different. And, of course, this isn't only about English. This is not the story of how interesting and quirky the English language is. This is something that happens in all languages. This is one of the ways that you get new words other than sounds dropping off of things, other than sounds changing, other than somebody inventing something new. So, Russian throws things like this at you. So, kazats to show. I'm going to show you something. Na means on. Okay? Okay. What does nakazat mean? To punish. So I'm going to show it on you. Does that mean to give somebody a whipping? I don't know. It started somehow. It's probably somewhere where there was snow. We will never know. But it's one of these things where a new word, this showing on that means to punish, such that a Russian person doesn't really even think about it, starts out from what was originally upon and to show. I'll show it upon you, little Igor but we wouldn't have expected that. Or, iti, to go, na, on, upon. I'm gonna go on it. That in Russian means to find. And so, naiti, I'm gonna find it. I, I found it. So, you go on something to find it. I guess when you find something, you're you're going on it. But going on could mean all sorts of things, and it's not what you would expect. It's really quite random now. So if a Russian tells you how to say they found something, they're using something that began as going upon. And so, New words come from old ones coming together and creating something completely different. Or switching from Russian to Chinese. I always tell my students, if you want to know what every language in the world is like, very, very approximately, then if you're starting from English, then take a look at Russian, then take a look at Chinese. Take a look at the language that's all full of prefixes and suffixes that don't make any sense, and then take a look at the language that smacks you in the face with the tones and being sometimes maddeningly telegraphic about things that European languages are maddeningly anal about. In any case, with, for example, Mandarin, you're not dealing with prefixes and suffixes when it comes to this sort of thing, because it's a language that doesn't like those. But this business of two things coming together and creating something brand new is something that's typical in all languages. Languages always find out a way to do it. So, for example, a movie in Mandarin. jianying, that's Electric shadow, that's pretty, and you can imagine how you know, somebody came up with that probably about a hundred years ago. It's an electric shadow. And so it's a yang. that's fine, you combine those. If you ask a speaker of Mandarin about word combinations, that's the sort of thing that comes up. But then, you know, one word for influence is of all things, 左右, you. okay? That's left-right, left-right, that's influence. And you can imagine how that idiom might have come along. But then again, it's certainly an idiom you would never expect it. It's two things, left and right, coming together to mean not something like willy-nilly or everywhere or your hands or something like that. But it means influence. That's just weird. And so, that's the sort of thing that happens in a language like Mandarin. What this means is that new words come along when two things combine. And in real life, this teaches a certain lesson. And that is that sometimes we can get almost irritated at how terms seem to mean something different from what the words mean. And you find yourself almost bedazzled trying to figure out what people mean by certain things over time. But what that is, is the quote-unquote understand process happening in real life, and it's inevitable. And so, to pick something. Affirmative action. Now, to be an American person is to probably know what that refers to. It's a policy that has to do with adjusting to discrimination and race-based disparities in the past. Affirmative action. But think about the two words, affirmative and action. Okay, first of all, what kind of action? And in terms of what affirmative action consists of, what well, we usually think of it as actions. That's very abstract. It seems almost hands-off in a way. Then affirmative well, what are you affirming? And if asked, we can come up with what's being affirmed, but it's a very artful way of expressing what affirmative action actually is these days. And the truth is that it was created as a term of art, but also a lot of social history has happened since affirmative action was instituted in the 1960s. And it means that there's kind of an understand make up issue there affirmative and action came together but they now refer to something that is quite different from what you would expect from those words independently so there is a new concept that is coming from the label in question the label has these two pieces the concept it's a new word affirmative action is a new chunk in that way or another one that You don't really think about social work. Social. Now, we know what a social worker is, but what's the social part? Because, you know, last time I checked, social has to do with human beings interacting. If that's what social is, then why is a social worker somebody who's assigned to do the things that social workers do? That's a very different sort of thing. Just that word social. So, for example, think about what a society is in Plato and Aristotle, they are thinking about society and the first thing they think about is despotism. Who's running the society? Is the society stable? Is it going to fall apart because of the depredations of tyranny, etc.? That, to them, is a society. To us, we think of society and immediately we think probably of the people in the society who are in need, And how that's alleviated, we think about power relations. Think about social, that's our first thought. Social worker, therefore. That's very different from what social originated as. And that has nothing to do with value. It's not that something went wrong. It's that there are always the understands and the dwoyos. That's just how language works. And so that's why you say that. I remember once just randomly hearing somebody say to someone else, I'm working at a social agency. And I remember thinking at the time, that's interesting that I immediately know what social means there as an English speaker, but that's not what social originally meant, or even agency. What's an agency? Agent what? This is exactly how words always work. But a lot of it is kind of random. So, think about a social worker. A social worker, if you roll the dice again, that could be somebody who you know proctors during an epidemic, I hate to say. A social worker could be an entertainment coordinator. You could think of it as being that, like a social director on a cruise ship or in a 1951 musical comedy about adults in the Catskills at a summer camp for grown-ups. Yes, there was such a thing. And yes, the social director did have a song. Yes, it was sung by Sidney Armis in Wish You Were Here. And yeah, I, I like it. And so, let's hear one of my favorite songs from Wish You Were Here, because it's time for a song cue, and I want something kind of up, although in a minor key. <laughs> Have I got a story, it's tragical and sad, about a certain character, a promising young lad. Just the type of fella that makes our country hum. He might have been our president, so what did he become? What did he become? (laughs) A social director, social director, up here at Camp Carefree, a social director. Someone should have told him not to be so dumb. Office Charlie, goodbye Charlie. Now he has become a social director. Laugh, she clown, itchy she jump, itchy she down, itchy she dance, 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 peb up, Do a funny make a just entertain a paying guest. Fast itchy, she slow, itchy she stop, itchy she go, itchy she dance, 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 peb up, <laughs> So, the understand business. And this takes us to a related aspect of how you get new words. I'm always talking about how things are dropping off, but how do you get the new stuff? Well, one way that you get the new stuff is that something that once had a meaning doesn't just fold in to create a brand new word where neither of the two parts has a meaning. But instead, it's just one part that kind of dies and ends up being meaningless, and as a result, you know what one of the parts still means, but the other part is just, it's like this graft that didn't take. I've talked about these on the show before, but just by way of review, there's something called cranberry morphemes in English, and that is, say, cranberry. What's the cran? They're theories, but you know, God knows. And really, we just say cranberry, and we know that it refers to that strange little berry cran, berry morphine. What's a crayon? We don't know. We know that it's a specific kind of berry. You know what berry means. It's not like understand where it's not about undering and it's not about standing disgust. It's a berry, but the crayon is just dead. Or the pretty concept of twilight. I love twilight, actually. No, actually, my favorite time of day is right before that. I get very touched that, you know, if you're in the middle of the year and it's around 4.30, quarter of five, I like that light. In any case, twilight. What's twi? And if you look at it, especially with the spelling of the word two, you can get a sense that maybe twy has something to do with half and nobody's exactly sure how it happened. But really, it's just it's just twy. And if you know what twilight is, you hear the twy and you think of you know whatever that feeling is you get as the day has passed the long shadowed stage and you know night is coming. Twy is a cranberry morpheme. You know it has to do with light. Light is fine. But the "twi" is dead. And the thing about cranberry morphemes is that it's not only these little pieces that are completely dead, but ones that are in kind of a zombie phase. And so, for example, think about these three verbs. Withhold, withdraw, withstand. Now, if you think about all three of those, then you figure that there's this with thing. So it's not just cranberry where you don't have cran anything else, except actually in branding, you know, Ocean Spray has this cran mango, And the Crayon Mango, they have a diet kind that only has a teeny tiny bit of sugar and yet actually still tastes good. I highly recommend Crayon Mango. I've been making non-alcoholic cocktails for my girls with crayon mango. And sometimes I'll just grab a few swigs of crayon mango just by myself and without alcohol. But in any case, that's later in the game. We don't talk about crayon anything else for real. But then again, withhold, withdraw, withstand. It seems like we've got some sort of prefix. So it's like recount or overlook. But you know, if you think about it, what, what does the with mean? So withhold, and you're thinking that with has to do with association, like Jimmy with Bill, or something like that. And so, withhold, and so maybe it's holding it close to you, okay? But withstand, I'm going to defend myself against Jimmy. I'm going to withstand. So, are you standing in association with nothing else, in association with yourself? No, not really. So, withhold and... Withdraw it has something to do with pulling inward you 're thinking, but then withstand seems to be pushing outward really there there 's no meaning at all, and actually, this width is not the width that we 're used to about Billy with gin. That with didn't exist when these words emerged. English's with then was mid, actually. So, you have this with, it just doesn't mean anything. If you want to kind of wrap your head around what it seems to mean, based on what it used to mean, it has to do with opposition, sort of. But really, at this point, it's gone. For example, you can't create new words with with. You can talk about, I will withstand your abuse, but you can't say, "Mm -hmm, I shall with-tolerate you. No, you're you're not. Nor would anybody say, I'm going to with-yank your privileges. You you can't with-yank. You can't take away by with-yanking. Really, withhold, withdraw, and withstand, they are not really hold and draw and stand with a piece of something on them, because we don't know what the piece of something means. They are new words. Just like understand is. The stand and the draw and the hold are more vivid than in understand. But the with is just hopeless. And actually with with withhold, we have to use the classic scene from what I think is the third episode of Arrested Development with Lucille withholding the candy bar because she's angry that her children have said that she gets off on withholding. I'm a little shaky, but but we're here to work. Michael! Mom, what are you doing here? Oh. Hello, Buster. Here's the candy bar. No, I'm withholding it. Look at me getting off. (laughs) I love that. And then it turns out that the camera pulls out. (laughs) This is in front of a board meeting. In any case, those are things that happen. Or, for example, ask a German. I'm sure they're sitting around waiting to be asked these sorts of things. Ask a German what fair means. They've got this prefix that really kind of fucks you up when you're trying to learn their language. So, for hunting, jagen. Hunt, jagen. Okay. To chase away, verjagen. To chase away, verjagen. So, fair means away, at least often. Okay. But ask a German, what does fair mean? And then ask them about other fairs that kind of get in your way. And so, sterben. That's to die. Festelben. Well what does Festelben mean? Does it mean to to die away <laughs> like somebody kind of runs away in the process of expiring? No, does Festelben mean that you're killing off some deer or something so that you're making them die? Oh it, see, it's just such a, a forced meaning. Festelben means basically, from my sense of it, it's the way that you say pass away. Just like in English, we don't really talk about, well, he died. If you're going to put any finesse on it, you say somebody passed away just as obligatorily as you say you're going to head out rather than that you're going to leave. You soften it with that. So, Verstorben. So, his uncle died not long ago. Sein Onkel ist kürzlich verstorben. So, Verstorben. Not just dead, but fair dead, basically. Or it seems to have to do with dying of something. And so, Recently dead, uncle, he is fair dead, not just dead. Well, what's, what's that? Or to take something is to name something. Nehmen to take. That's my German voice. Sorry, it's kind of like the Hebrew voice, but different. Hebrews is a deep voice, but it's more resonant. Germans is more precise, of course. And so, nehmen that is to take. And then to perceive is fair nehmen. So, you take something, and then you fair take something, and that's to perceive. Now, whatever that nuance is... Is that the same thing as the dying and the fair dying, dying often? No, it's just different. And so, it's this thing where in German, fair often has a meaning, but as often as not, you just kind of have to know. It's become just this bit of stuff that can do all sorts of things depending on what word it is. And so, you have these new words. And so, perceive, fell name. It's not about doing something to the taking, because that's too idiomatic, you've got this new thing. So, in German, sounds are dropping off all the time, but then you get new words because elements are coming together. And talk about, say, dying, if <laughs> we must. Think about our dying off, when you think about how idiomatic these things get to be. We have a way of saying that a generation is coming not to exist in a very respectful way. So all of that cohort are dying off, we say. Well, off what? Why do we use off with that? But more to the point, it means that because English is a real language, it has a way of referring to a generation of, you know, say, dear ones coming to the end of their lives, and you say, well, they're dying off, or think about in the rest of development, getting off. But dying off, we know what the die is, the off is is hopeless, though, and really, we have a word, in a way. These things are not A and B, you've you've got in-between phases, but it's an interesting thing, like the song, Tony, My Love, by The Spinners there's a transition for you, but I want to play Tony, my love. This is from Happiness is Being with the Spinners, which is one of their best albums. Nobody ever cared about Tony, my love, but I remember my father playing this in the marvelous, hideous 70s before I had any problems, and it is the most quirky song musically in terms of arrangement. It was always my second favorite on the album, and nobody else cared about it because life is lonely, but just listen to this, and if you get it, listen to the whole thing after you Listening to me rambling on. This is Tony, my love, 70s gold. Kind eyes of a kitten open when I come around. Nice things with a sparkle takes her beyond space and time. Tony's all mine, but she should take the time to respect what I say on strong is the heart of her own. She can't stop. What a shame. Tony, my love, you don't know what you're doing. Seems like you don't get better. Tony, my love, it's you you're really fooling when you say that we should just give in. Mama, tell her how I've been wrong. And so, this is where the clip of me and my daughter comes in. So, what was going on there is that there's this word upside down. And notice what I said. I didn't say upside down. I said upside down. Well... It's one thing to see it on the page. It's another thing to actually speak English. And I found it interesting to see what my little English-speaking daughter thinks of that word in her head versus what she's learning to read of that word on the page. Mike, play the clip again, please. Read this word. Upside down. Mm Mm-hmm. Why are they separate? You mean the two words upside and down? Because really, it's just a word. It's upside down. That's really all it is. But you write it upside down because people used to say, Whoa, there he is with his upside down. But that was a long time ago. So, yeah, this just it's bad upside down So do it again. Upside down. We quote unquote know that's what it is because we can read. But it's not upside down. You wouldn't even say that slowly. It's upside down upside down. You hear the up, you hear the down, the sigh. I will definitely say that I would not know that it had to do with side if I couldn't read. It's just that it's this word down, but with this upside, upside hooked to it and hooked completely to it. You don't have any sense of it being two words until you learn that that's how it happens to be written. Because of course, upside down comes from what were the two words upside down and down. So in the real language we have the word down and then down can have this thing on it upside down which can almost be seen as not a down at all but it's certainly a new word that label. There's really no reason to call it two things because there's no such thing as upside all by itself. And we don't think of ourselves as saying upside quickly. There's just something called upside. It might as well be spelled U-P-S-I-G-H. Upside, down, upside down. And by the way, in answer to the question that you might be asking, no, I do not record all of my existence such that I can (laughs) clip out that thing happening between me and Vanessa. It happened for real, exactly in that way. And then it was funny, I wanted to use it on the show. And so, I got Nessa to do some act Ding. And I want you to listen to what this little five-year-old actually came up with. She doesn't know what acting is. I don't even know if she knows yet that people on TV are not actually doing what they're doing. But listen to her say her line. Mike, play her play her again. Upside down. Mm-hmm. Why are they separate? And isn't that great? And remember, she can't read a line yet. You know, she can't read well enough. So, she just remembered what to say and it sounded like she meant it. In any case, that is how these things go. Notice how you hear in any case and you think the show's over. I'm realizing I now always say, in any case, you can reach us. But I'm not saying that yet. We're still in the middle. In any case, <laughs> we have another example that I remember from real life. And that's the expression, take it for granted. Take it for granted. You know how to write it. You know, in Dr. Seuss, it would be take it for granted. But do you notice that really, it's take it, and then there's something you might spell as roughly F-O-R-G-R-A-N-I-T-T. For granted. For granted. Take it for granted that, and we all know what it means, but I certainly don't think of it as taking it as if it were granted. I didn't know that's what it meant until I learned what it looked like on the page. I remember first hearing it from someone else and saying, what do you mean take it for granted? And this was somebody very intelligent, but not metalinguistically particularly apt. He had many other talents, but he wasn't great at this sort of thing. And he couldn't explain What take it for granted meant. He was using it right, but he didn't say. For example, it's about taking something as granted to you. And the reason he didn't say it was because he didn't know it, and it's because really we barely know that. Really, it's for granted is a label that refers to this issue of feeling taken advantage of or referring to somebody taking unfair advantage of something. And so you can take it hard. You can take it wrong you can take it inappropriately, you can take it for granted, for granted. It's really a new word because it's no longer about grant. If a Martian came down and transcribed the language, they'd think for granted has a certain meaning involving somebody being offended in how they interpret something. The Martian etymologist would figure out that, hey, originally it came from for granted, isn't Language interesting, boop, it would be that sort of thing. But you would never think of it immediately. And ah, uh, yes, we have come to that point in the show where I need to point out that if you don't have Slate Plus yet, then you're not actually getting the whole show. Because what's Slate Plus? Well, many of you may be hearing this for the first time. Slate Plus means that for a nominal fee, You can hear this episode, but with a little tag at the end where I give you more information, sometimes about what I did the show about, just as often, just whatever was on my mind, sometimes with more musical clips, and you get not only that, but also you don't have to listen to any ads read by me or anyone else. So you get a cleaner experience for just a nominal fee, and there's more. You get that for all of Slate's podcasts. So of course, mine is just one, and frankly, not the best of all of them. There are other ones, and they're more important, and you would get them, where there are no ads, and you get the tag. So for that nominal fee, you should listen to Slate Plus. That's slate.com slash lexiconplus. That's where you would take care of this. For just a nominal fee, frankly, your life just gets better. So for example, in this case, Vanessa is one of my daughters, Dahlia is the other one. One time we were at a gas station, and she asked, why is it that you call it gas, what you're pumping into the car, but then gas is also just stuff that's up in the air? What kind of sense does that make? Well, it does make a kind of sense, depending on what you call sense, but you won't know what sense it makes unless you get Slate Plus and listen to me talking about it at the end of this show, but only for Slate Plus subscribers today. Sometimes it's whole little phrases that end up creating what are basically words. Think of the Sopranos. And I don't mean, I mean, Sopranos as in the wonderful TV show that helped to inaugurate this golden age of television that we're living in. You know, how people talk about the golden age of television was Sid Caesar and Gunsmoke and these flickering black and white things. And yes, I like some of them, but that's the golden age. I Love Lucy was the golden age. We're living in it. These are the good old days, as they say. In any case, it starts with the Sopranos. And remember that expression they use, which is, all due respect. All due respect, T. But And what I mean by that expression is this. And here it is said to veto and listen to the intonation of it. All due respect. Where the fuck were you that night? So, of course, it starts with, with all due respect, I think that we should celebrate the birthday tomorrow. That's how it starts. But they don't say with. They just say all due respect. They don't say with anymore. And what it means is I don't want to seem insubordinate or impolite, but... And the way that they indicate that sentiment is with the chunk, all due respect. And the thing is, they don't say, all due respect, we should have the birthday tomorrow. They say it as if it's just a word. Actually, we should have the birthday tomorrow. All due respect, we should have the birthday tomorrow. In other words, all due respect starts out, boop, as with all due respect. But really, it's just become these syllables that you utter, the respect part, Peeps out. You can tell how this sort of thing started. It's like you know one of those transparent fish where you can see what they eat. One of those deep sea fish. That was a weird analogy, but it just came to mind. But the respect is all there. The all in the do. Nobody's thinking about that to the point that you even leave off the with. You know on the Sopranos. If you live in New York, and well, just if you live in New York and you leave your house, you often meet the Sopranos. That was especially true back in the aughts. I met. Bobby Bacala, Stephen Sharipa. I was just in an Italian restaurant in Tribeca, and so was he. He was delightful. He was so just openly, genuinely, and warmly enjoying being famous. Not in a remotely obnoxious way, but he was very nice. I think he was buying people drinks. I was not one of them, but he was so nice. I also met Vincent Curatola, Johnny Sack. I was very pleased to meet him. There's a picture of me (laughs) with him. Very gracious. It was a lot of fun. Anyway, these things float around. These whole phrases become basically words. And that's how you get, for example, you can look at the process having gone much further. That's how you get by, as in bye-bye. That's how you get darn. By and darn both start as whole expressions. "Bye" starts as God be with you. And next thing you know, it's God be God bye," goodbye, goodbye. And then you shorten it to "bye." So after a while people weren't thinking about, you know, wishing that you would be with God. You just had by. Darn starts out as eternal damnation. Then that becomes tarnation. Then that becomes darnation, because there's that word damnation and it sounds kinda like it. And then darnation. <laughs> darn. And then after a while, darn. Darn's not a word. You know, basically, Henry VIII would have been mystified by people saying, bye-bye, that would have made no sense because to him, bye is something that originated with be with you, be with you, be with you. And darn, no, you know, darning socks, I suppose, but not darn, you stepped on my toe. He would have no blessed idea. Another one in this case, think about what the hell? All right, what the hell? Well, what is the hell? In what the hell, what part of speech is the hell? what the hell do you want? Well, what is the object? What the hell do you want? Is hell a noun? Well, technically, but how is it nouning? You know, how does it even fit in? What seems to be the main thing here? So, why? Why the hell? You know how that starts? It starts with what in the world? And people are saying what in the world way back in Old English. And so, somebody could say, who in the world doesn't marvel at the full moon? And so, why is on world that's who is in the world why is on world That no wonder fullest that doesn't wonder at the full moon that no wonder of fullest but mainly why is on world what in the world who in the world would not wonder at a full moon well you say what in the world but language is always trying to refresh itself you want vivid expressions. So, after a while, if there is this word hell, for what in the world, you might say, well, what in the hell? What in the hell is that? And that starts popping up in English. What in the hell is that? Well, what in the hell is that can go in two directions. One thing that can drop out is the the. What in hell is that? And you know that people definitely say that. But it might be that instead of the the dropping out in what in the hell it might be the in. Because you're not really thinking about what you're saying, you're not thinking about grammar, it's just an eruption. And so, what in the hell might become what in hell, which still makes a kind of grammatical sense. But then, what in the hell could become what the hell. What the hell is that? You drop off the N. So all due respect, T, you drop the whiff. What in the hell? What the hell? You drop off the N. That's something that can happen quite naturally. And next thing you know, you have this weird little chunk. What the hell? Grammatically, it doesn't really fit into anything, and you don't care because when you're saying what the hell, you're speaking from your right brain. You know, a lot of profanity burps out of your right brain rather than your analytical left brain. What the hell is that? You're not thinking about making it into a prepositional phrase and making it into what in the hell or something like that. Next thing you know, the hell is just this little unparsable bit of stuff, just kind of calves off. I'm trying to use the iceberg analogy. You know, icebergs have calves. God knows how that started. But imagine a little iceberg, it calves off and goes and sinks a boat or something like that. And so, the hell calves off, calves off like a little icebergette. And pretty soon, you've got the hell with it or the hell I will. The hell you what? what what's, what's the hell? But that's how language happens. And of course, profanity is language. You know, it's funny. Somebody ought to write a book about the history of dirty words coming out in May from Avery Books at Penguin Random House. Somebody ought, hypothetically, to write that book. They ought to title it Nine Nasty Words, May 2021. It ought to come out from Avery Books at Penguin Random House. And, you know, it's time for one more song cue, and it's interesting. 20s and 30s, people thought this New Yorker cartoon was hilarious that involved a little girl who's being told by her mother that some substance is something other than the spinach that it is. And the little girl says, I say it's spinach and the hell with it. I'm trying to do that little girl in an early talkie. So, I say it's spinach and the hell with it. That was considered the funniest thing. I say it's spinach and the hell with it because the child is cursing and hell was stronger then than it is now. You know, Now hell in many cases has been replaced by, if I may, fuck but I say it's spinach and the hell with it. People thought that was so funny because after a while it shortened to, well, I say it's spinach. And that was a way of saying the hell with it. If you were a cultivated person, humor (laughs) doesn't not preserve. But, you know, Irving Berlin actually did a whole song about this because it was that hip. It was in his musical Face the Music of 1932. Here's a modern recording of a little bit of I Say It's Spinach. You know, this isn't even a good song. I love me some Irving Berlin, but I don't sit around listening to this for fun. But here is the hell used in a piece of popular art a very long time ago. So we'll just have to prepare mm-hmm. to, to snap, snap our, our fingers again. Long as there's you, long as there's me Long as the best things in life are free I say it's spinach and the hell with it The hell with it, that's all Long as I'm yours, long as you're mine Long as there's love and a moon to shine I say it's spinach and the hell with it The hell with it, that's all There must be rain to her past there's you, long as there's me, long as the best things in life are free, I say it's spinach and the hell with it, the hell with it, that's all. So, you know, the real grammar is that often even these constructions, these expressions, you know, they become words, essentially. It's this driftwood that becomes words. I <laughs> Driftwood. I remember watching Mary Tyler Moore's variety show that she did. She took a year off after her iconic sitcom, and then she tried a variety show. And goodness, it was an unfortunate thing. And I, of course, tried to watch it. And at one point, she is doing this number where there are these big pieces of driftwood on the set. And she's dancing around, because she was a dancer, and she's kind of moving back and forth and all around these big pieces of polystyrene driftwood. And she was actually singing a song that some poor soul had to sit down and write. And the song was called Driftwood. And so, she He's gliding around the stage. And I remember the first notes of it were, driftwood. And at that point, I sat there thinking, this show is not going to (laughs) work. One more thing about where words come from. And, you know, there's some fancy names you can give to these things, but sometimes it's just some shit. This is the section about just some shit. There are a couple of cases that don't really fit in, but this is to give you a sense of how you get a new word, why a word is the way it is. And how it's often just random likenesses that next thing you know make something into something that it's not supposed to be. So, purse. You're carrying a purse. Where do you get purse? Well, it's from Latin's word bursa. And if you know a little bit about anatomy and disgusting things that you might get, you can think of like bursitis, etc. It's a bursa. It's a pouch. Just the other day, I learned what the word for trash bag in Spanish is. I was trying to say it and realize I had never learned that word. Turns out it's bolsa, bolsa. That comes from Latin's bursa. Take bursa and, you know, transform it. You get bolsa, okay? So, we should have a burse. It's not supposed to be a purse. And no one exactly knows why the B changed to a P. But it wasn't some natural process of sounds changing in predictable ways, as I've talked about, so that, you know, pater, father in Latin, is father in English because the P goes to F in the same way that your pedal extremities, as in that ped, Latin root, we talk about feet, put to foot, regular. But there's no regular B to P in English. Why Why is it a purse instead of a burst? And, you know, probably... It's because there was another word in earlier English, pusa. Pusa meant bag. Pusa is just some word for bag. This isn't the burst word. But people were probably hearing pusa and they're thinking, well, this purse is another bag. So why don't we call it a purse? So it was just some random accident. These are the sorts of things that happen when one thing happens to sound like another. And next thing you know, a word has a very different form, talk about where words come from, than what you would think it would. I remember once I was, sorry about all these reminiscences, but I'm being a little goofy in this one because it's the end of the year and these things really do come to mind. I was trying to refer to a man of a certain size as um, portly, this is long, long time ago in an office setting. And I said, well, because he's kind of a portly gentleman, we would have to, and I was just trying to say that, you know, maybe with some little bit of linguistic creativity, but without using a cruder <laughs> word. And somebody kept kind of needling me about saying it, you know, in a, in a nice way, but she seemed to think that I had still insulted him in some way. And gradually, as we talked about it, I realized she actually thought, and this <laughs> makes perfect sense, she thought that I was saying poor <laughs> she thought that I was saying porkly. because, And you can imagine why somebody might think that the word is that, especially because the port part in portly is one of these things. It's now completely obscure, and there's a whole Lee story here too. But it's one of these you know, words that has become a word from things that originally meant other things, or we no longer know what they meant. But she thought it was porkly. So, you can imagine in a different English that there might emerge a word porkly, which starts as portly, but then people have this certain association. Purse was one of those things. Or, or one more, if we're on the peas. Pudding. It's a pudding. Is a pudding something that's been engaging in the action that's called to pud? No. You know what that starts with? Pudding is originally some disgusting boiled sausage. You know, that kind of thing that... Sometimes happens, you know, over on either side of the English Channel. This is the, on either side of it. I'm making fun of both countries. Now, sometimes their version of sausage is kind of different from what an American would expect. Not Germans, but this thing, like, for example, French is um, that boudin sausage. It's kind of, you know, well, in any case, pudding is originally, it's boiled sausage. When I guess that's the best that people could do. And so we get the word as what would be boudin from French. But then budin became booting, and it became booting because people thought, well, often in is short for ing, so singing, singing, and so bootin is slang for booting. It sounds like Popeye. Give me the booting. (laughs) Something like that. But... It's not in ing. There is no booting, but that kind of caught on because maybe booting feels better. And also, after a while, it wasn't boiled sausage. You started boiling other things to make a pudding, such as, I'm guessing, sometimes if people were really hungry, it was probably socks. And after a while, you're boiling flour. (laughs) Oh whatever, I don't know much about making dessert. But it means that you weren't thinking about sausage anymore, and so booting felt right because you wanted a different label for snack pack as opposed to Bob Evans. So next thing you know, you have booting, and as for the P, nobody knows. And this time it has nothing to do with something being in a bag like pusa. And by the way, I have to say I'm going to say this even more gently than I was trying to use the word portly back in 1986. There are people who, I think, quite incorrectly suppose that pusa for bag ended up becoming a very dirty word. Pusa for bag. And that there's this analogy perhaps between bag and that <coughs> anatomical. Then I'm just going <laughs> to leave it there. I think that analogy is false. There are other places that that term came from having more to do with cats, but pusa enters into certain discussions. In any case, sometimes it's it's just some shit. Sorry about all this profanity, but you know what? Despite the label that they always put at the front of my show, have you noticed that I don't curse as much these days? You know, somebody wrote me not long ago saying you shouldn't curse so much, and I was thinking, I know what they mean, but really these days it's usually just one a show because I did start to realize children are listening to this and I cannot just sit here sounding off like a sailor all the time. But I must admit I relaxed it somewhat today. In any case, the August problem. So I said that in French, August is pronounced just oo. And I've heard from some of you who question that, saying that the word for August is pronounced out. And I fully understand what you mean. And those of you who have written this to me are native French speakers, of which I am not by a long, long shot. But I can definitely say from my experience, which is not native French speaking experience, but it is an experience of being surrounded by the French tongue for an extended, if you call a summer an extension, extended period of time. When I lived in Montreal in the summer of 1995, I definitely heard many Quebecers saying, ooh, and I was it was August. It was also a bizarrely hot August, even up there. The word was definitely ooh, and I looked it up, and it's a Canadian alternative. I was taught ooh. You know, I learned, you know, the standard textbook Parisian French. And I remember learning ooh and being perplexed by the spelling. Maybe that was just my particular teachers. One of one of them's name was Armel. Armel, if you're hearing this, you said ooh. And then also it's in the textbooks all the time as a language change example. All of which is to say there is variation between ooh and oot, but there are real Living, breathing, French-speaking, native French-speaking people who say "ou," and that allows the point that Augustus can become "ou." But for those of you who say "oot," and for those of you who maybe have pretty much only heard "oot," I can imagine how it sounds for me to be sitting here saying, "I'm this American person." And, well, in oo yeah, I know. But I have been genuinely under the impression that they're real people as opposed to me. I'm not real, but real people who say ooh. Let's go out on something else a little goofy. This is from the musical Hairspray. This is The Nicest Kids in Town. This is near the beginning of the show when you're seeing the dance TV show that furnishes the germ of the plot in this musical. And you're just watching all of these kids dancing around. And, you know, a lot of it had to be seen. Just the pastel, candy-colored costumes. It was a great number. I saw Hairspray eight times. That is my record for a Broadway. I paid for this over and over and over again. Just loved it to pieces. The movie of Hairspray summons up what the nicest kids in town looked like pretty well, if you want to get a sense. In any case, if you listen to the whole song, you might hear some peculiar lyrics. The plot is about race relations. This is Clark Thorrell singing The Nicest Kids in Town with the chorus. Hey there, teenage Baltimore! Don't change that channel, cause it's time for the Corny Collins Show! Brought to you by Ultra Clutch Hairspray! Oh, every afternoon when the clock strikes four, the mine. any case you can reach us at lexiconvalley at slate.com that's lexiconvalley at slate.com to listen to past shows and subscribe or just to reach out go to slate.com slash lexiconvalley and folks as we look back on a truly shitsome year thank you for putting up with those shows in the spring that sound like i'm recording on a phone in my bedroom closet because i was and by the way folks because We saddled you with the switch from Mike and Bob to me with no announcement. I should let you know that after June, I am likely going to be moving on from the Valley. Five years is about enough, but we have so many shows to go until then. You know I've been having a wonderful time and I will continue to. I hope that you will continue to connect with this business of me sharing my toys with you every two weeks. I've got plenty more of them up my sleeve. Mike Vola will be, as always, the editor, and I am John McWhorter.